Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, I catch up with Cub member Sam Wood, the founder and CEO of Azura. Azura is a company that connects fashion retailers to 42 of the world's largest online marketplaces. Azura has also launched their own marketplace called Azura Runway, which they plan to make the Australian far-fetched. We talk about sales, uh, additional revenue streams, and just going with the flow. It was an incredible episode. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Sam. How are you, man? Good. Good, Daniel. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. How old are you? 32. 32. You look young. (laughs) And you're young, but you've got a pretty incredible company. And I've just been trying to, before the podcast started, I was asking Sam a bunch of questions, trying to understand more about the business. This is the first time we've met. Yes. So so I'm really starting from scratch here. So why don't you kind of introduce us to... Azura Runway um, uh, and what it is, uh, just so I can learn a bit more about it at the same time as the listeners. Yep. So uh, Azura Consulting is is our parent company um, and underneath that we have a a fashion marketplace, which is Azura Runway. Um, How it works is we've designed Azura to be the gateway to fashion. So it enables brands and distributors to plug into Azura and then sell across marketplaces all around the world. So if you're a boutique or, or a brand on the corner in Bondi um, and you have very little foot traffic or a website, um, you could plug into our platform and then we send you out to marketplaces such as Iconic, to Catch, um, but also we send you to marketplaces in Europe, in the UK, uh, the US and also Southeast Asia. How many marketplaces are there in total that you'd work or roughly? Uh, we work with 42 marketplaces now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's about a thousand marketplaces in existence that deal with fashion. So the opportunity uh, for our growth is, is enormous. Okay, so let's say I'm um, I own Hakim Fashion. It's a fashion wear company that specialises in hoodies for entrepreneurs. Um, we've got a little store in Bondi. You know, we're making a bit of a splash. We want to get out there in a cost-effective way and have a a I guess, a, a, a huge presence online, we can come to Azura Consulting and you guys can basically put us on 42 of the world's top fashion platforms. And, and just, just so I can understand, a fashion platforms like an online retailer kind of thing, isn't it? Like a iconic... Um, Farfetch, Netaport. Farfetch, Netaport. So those are, those are what the platforms are. Yeah. And so we, you help like small <laughs> Hakim hoodies yep. get onto onto these platforms. Yes, yes. And um, how we do it is obviously we, we take the data and we push it out there, but a lot of the people we work with um, don't have data that is uh, enables it for marketplaces. Like each marketplace needs a certain thing. Like they'll say to you, all right, these hoodies, are they short sleeve? Are they printed? Are they tight fitting? Um, and a lot of businesses or mainly distributors won't actually have that information. So what we do is um, we have an AI tool that once that data comes into the system, our, our program we call Azura Effect, um, it actually scans the image and it pulls out things like, oh, this dress is pleated, uh, it's short sleeve, it, the occasion is winter um, and the colour. And, and so it sends things. it to the platforms and notifies them. Like- Correct. And it puts into the right category, maps it. Like if you wanted to list on to the catch, the the, um, the attributes that they need is is like t-shirts, short sleeve, long sleeve, and that's probably it. But if you wanted to list on the iconic, it goes into much more detail. And so if I was like a single retailer, so I'm Hakim Hoodies, um, I would have to manually do all that type of stuff. And is the is are you saying the AI just makes it a lot easier? And yeah, the AI does it automatically. Like we have. 150,000 products that come through our system and we have 3,000 new products yeah, fuck manually. Day. Fuck manually. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. And how did you get that? How did you get that? I don't want to get too much in the AI, but how, how did you, did you, how did you find that software or did you guys so, have to yeah, build so that? So, yeah, we, 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 we um, developed partnerships with other companies that did little bits and pieces of each thing 
and we kind of pulled that together and kind of created that Azura effect um, because obviously the, the tagging is one thing and it's then pushing it out to the marketplace in the right categories is the next thing. And and Azura Runway, so that's that's your own online platform. That's your own online fashion retailer, is that correct? Correct. So we're trying to become uh, the net porter of Australia. Okay. So there's Super no one cool. in Australia that's really doing luxury fashion well. Like the iconic sell 80% fast fashion. So Maya, David Jones, they're probably the only ones that kind of compete in that level. Yeah. Um, so we're, we have, as we compete with Netaporter and Farfetch, we also, they're also our suppliers as well. So yeah, do they have an issue with that though? Would they be like, hey, hold on a second, dude. Like you can't sell on us and try to compete. Compete with us. Well, yeah, exactly. But I guess we're in the in the growth stages of, of two or two years old, so we're still probably not on their radar yet. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, people buy from Farfetch because it's a, it's a cult. Like you go to you walk into Gucci because you want the experience. Same thing with Farfetch. Where with us, we enable it so brands like Gucci can get rid of last season's stock without giving it to the outlet stores or discounting the hell out of it. We can, can control the price but also make compelling enough for the customer to buy it. So it's a one-of-a-piece one items or pieces that you can't find anywhere else. Okay, and 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 so your goal is to become the Netaporter of Australia. And just for those of us who don't online shop very often like myself, Netaporter is an online retailer that specialises in high-end fashion. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay, so you want to become Australia's high-end fashion online retailer. Yeah, but how we, we differ though is we control the whole process where – Netaporter and Farfetch, they are a marketplace. Where with us, so with your jumper company, um, how we would work is we would send DHL to come pick up the parcel. So we would give you the labels. We would create the data for you. We would control the pricing. The big thing with marketplaces is a lot of marketplaces pay 90 to 60 days. So you're selling products all around the world. Um, all of a sudden, you've got half a million dollars in people's bank accounts. We cash flow that. And we give the, the brands and the products uh, the money up front. Okay, so you pay people first, yeah. which – quicker, sorry. Which is, I guess, a good strategy and you make it easier for them in that you take on a lot of the workload in regards to uploading the, I don't know, data and all the type of stuff yeah. you need, delivering, sending it, blah, blah, blah. So is that your strategy? So that, that would be like to me that sounds like that is your strategy for growth within the market is to be a better – um, a better service for the suppliers. Is that how you plan to, to obtain more suppliers? Yeah, it's it's that and it's also the barriers to entry for a lot of these businesses is, is quite large. Like if you're wanting to sell into the US on some marketplaces, you need a US entity or you need a US returns address um, or you need a warehouse there to sort the returns. So we kind of take that whole process and we do that for everyone. So we look after... Um, we've got a warehouse in Poland, in the UK, in the US, where we look after all the returns. Like you've got some marketplaces that are, the return rate is 40 to 50%. Really? So like Zalando in the, the Europe. And and but so do, what would be the difference between someone going on to a, a, the Iconic independently and selling to America as opposed to going through you guys? So with, with us, we would negotiate a wholesale price and then we would sell above and beyond that. Okay. So without, with Iconic, they take a commission and then they charge you also a fee if you're late for delivery. Um, they also charge you different fees and here, this and that. Um, we take that guesswork away and we take the wholesale price and we just look after the whole thing end-to-end. Um, and Iconic is one of 42 marketplaces. So okay. it's going everywhere else. So, and, and so really it sounds – so you, you have the power of numbers. You, you, you kind of wholesale – it's kind of like wholesale yeah. purchasing, right? And so, if I'm a sm- if I'm Hakim Hoodies, I'm a smaller business. That's obviously a lot more appealing. Is that your target that the smaller, high end retailers, as opposed to the big, the big fashion companies who can negotiate great terms with these uh, with these platforms? Um, it's a bit of both. Um, we we our business is more about data than anything else. Um, and we when we first started out, we used companies like Dolce and Gabbana and Gucci and Prada to get us into the doors of a lot of these big marketplaces. Um, so they're definitely the bread and butter of, of where the revenue comes from. But it's where um, the boutiques and like the hoodie companies where the Australian market, for instance, is more after. Like you go to um, Camilla Remark or you go to any other Australian, Alice McCall, 
And that's what the Australian public are wanting to buy. So it's each market is very different in what we sell. Like we sell a lot of Prada into, into Europe and we sell a lot of Australian designers into Australia. So it's very different in what we do. Um, our goal this year is to target Australian designers and bring them to the world because um, it is a huge untapped market of where all these marketplaces, it's, it is just data of sending these products out. Yeah, and I also think that if the goal is to become Australia's high-end fashion retailer, uh, online fashion retailer, specialising in Australian designers probably, is probably the best way to do that. Exactly. exactly. And, and what, what is Azura? What's the name? Azura? Azura, um, I started Azura uh, seven years ago um, when I started a modelling agency um, and it means confidence. So we started the modelling agency seven years ago, did a few things, a few, few catwalk shows for Breast Cancer Foundation and then kind of fizzled out. That was kind of a hobby. Um, I started Azura. Um, it sounds like a fun hobby. It was, it was good fun. <laughs> it was good fun. Um, but then we started Azura uh, five years ago and we got it into the consultancy company. Um, and then we, we dealt with um, anything from media to radio down to uh, importing and exporting. So I was um, – yeah, just looking for different opportunities in where I could bring this business and I just love the name. But the name is – why does it mean confidence? In what language or in what? In Italy, um, it may, I think it means blue. But it, in terms of the actual Zura was where the confidence came from. I just did some research on it and it was confidence came out of it. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that's something I want to really – Are you Italian by any chance? No, no, no. Just full Australian. Just full Australian, <laughs> full Australian, straight from Newcastle. Exactly. Hailing from Newcastle, fighting out of Sydney. <laughs> um, awesome. And, and well, tell us about you. I guess I kind of – Jumped again. Obviously, I've read that you're from Newcastle. Where did you? Where, what? What was your upbringing like? Were your parents in business? Did you think you were going to be an entrepreneur, or, or run us through the journey? Yeah, most of my family uh, are in engineering, so they work in dredging or engineering, um, and that was kind of where uh, my family or my mum was really grooming me to go to university and do all that. Um, I finished year twelve uh, in St Phillips in Newcastle, and uh, my granddad got me a job on a dredge. Um, which, what's, a, what's a dredge? So dredges, they dig up Newcastle Harbour and pump all the sand out of it and push it onto the onto the beach. Mm-hmm. So it just makes the the, the actual uh, river wider and deeper. So they got me a job on that. Um, it was my first job out of school. I was making 100K, first job out of school. Jeez. So I thought this is great, except it was five weeks on, seven, day, uh, seven days a week, five weeks on, 12 hours a day, daytime and nighttime. And after six months, I was like, well, I'm not interested in this at all. It's just too hard. There's the whole dynamic of people you work with, but also um, I just well, couldn't see myself doing it. And then my stepdad at the time was in real estate um, and he was making quite good money and he was talking and and that could kind of groom me to be more away from the family in terms of uh, the engineering side, but more towards the sales side. And then I thought, right, I want to get oh, into sales. because he was a real estate agent. He was, selling out, he was selling houses. Yeah. Yeah. It was just completely different than what my mum was trying to get me to do. So it was appealed to me as well. So I, I got into car sales, funny enough, because um, I didn't want to get in, I didn't want to work for him. Oh, then um, you did get into car sales. I got into car sales. So I got into car sales um, and I got into used cars. So I did that for a while and I found that I had a kind of natural talent for doing quite well. Um, so we did that for some time um, and then my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, um, wanted to go to the univer- uh, the Manly College. So I had a decision to make to follow her to Sydney or stay in Newcastle and do car sales. So <laughs> I, I followed her to, to Sydney and then I got a job in car sales in Sydney in Northern Beaches um, where I worked for another three years, enjoyed it. But then, funny story, I went to uh, Vegas for my Bucks party and – it was Holly Madison pulled me on stage and she's, she's like, the playboy girl. The playboy girl, yeah. yeah. She pulled me on stage and it was like, what do you do for a job? And I was like, I'm a car salesman. And the whole crowd just burst out laughing because <laughs> car sales in the US is like the worst. <laughs> so I remember coming home and I'm like, fuck this, I'm, not, I'm getting out of car sales. So I left car sales literally as soon as I got back. <laughs> Vegas, <laughs> Vegas, Vegas killed, Vegas me. killed me. <laughs> Vegas changed my career. It did, it did. And so I, I left there and then I went into um, engineering sales uh, for my uncle. Um, and same thing, I, I did quite well um, selling engineering services, which was good at the beginning, um, but it was right when the GFC happened and the coal mining started going under. So I thought I need to get out of this. Um, and that's when I found a job with Living Social. And Living Social is like one of those daily deals, Groupon, 
kind of company where it was a lot of telemarketing, telesales, calling restaurants up saying, would you want a 50% off deal? So I did that. But the one thing about that company was living social was social. It was, we used to have Vegas nights. We used to have huge parties there and it was like the Wolf of Wall Street sort of thing. It was mm-hmm. a lot of fun. And I basically started with that company and then slowly moved up until um, I started doing more uh, the enterprise sales, looking after Hoyts and those kind of things. I and just, so how old were you when you got married then? You must have been pretty young. 23. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so Do you have kids? I have three kids now. Wow. And three kids at 32. Yes. it was it's, Good job. Yeah. So I I met her when I was 14. So been together wow. for 16 years now. So what's, what's your wife's name? Bonnie. Bonnie. Bonnie, Bonnie Wood. Yeah. Wow. So, so you got married at 23. How old were you when you had your first kid? Oh, I was 30. Oh, you're 30 when you had two. Oh, yeah, so I we, no, you we can't. You got time. three. Oh, yeah, the twins. So I had I had Aurora, my oldest daughter. Yeah, and then we were actually planning on going to Coachella last year, and then we found out that Bonnie was pregnant. So we went into the, the surgery place, and they're like, uh, "Were you expecting twins?" And we're like, "We weren't expecting one." Wow! <laughs> so that was a huge wake up call. Uh, they're bo- obviously born, two boys, yeah. two twin two boys, boys. And one girl. So identical? Or, or no, they're fraternal, so they're they're completely opposite. One's, really? One looks like he's about to be a prop, and the other one's going to be a five eight. <laughs> Good. Oh, that's so. exciting. So, but you were married for seven years before that. So you had kids at three. Yeah, that's probably pretty. Yeah, pretty like we had, we had, we, we were always planning on having kids, but it just wasn't that time. Mm. None of them were planned. But and so, were you in now. high school together? No, my high school was next to hers. Um, she went to a dancing school, and I went to a football school. And and so so you you're at living social. You you went to the top of the ranks in terms of sales. You now you know kind of in the enterprise sales level, sales management style stuff. Where was the point where you decided? Okay, I want to. I want to start my own business. Well, it was the next the next job after that. It was I kind of did everything I could at that company, um, and then I started working for a company called PMP or IPMG at the time, which was the largest marketing company in Australia. Um, and I started dealing with clients like Uber and Audi, and I was ma- bringing in a lot of money, but not seeing much of it. So I thought I need to I need to do something different. So when I was went in to pitch a client, I thought in the back of my head I should trying to start my own media company. So I went in and, and pitched Sushi Train. So I went in there, pitched Sushi Train, and I said, hey, I want to do your media, I want to do your radio and everything else. And, and they gave it to us. Um, so we started a business off that. To your business, to or, business. To, or to the marketing company you're working for? The marketing company I worked for was doing print. So I wasn't doing radio or anything like that. So I went in there and pitched that as well. Oh, okay. So we did the print for them as well, but I also got off the, I got the radio and the TV and, um, and we built a business around that. And so sushi, okay. So off the back of selling print to Sushi Train, you pitched them your own business on the side, yeah. which was Media Buy, Media Buy, and then Sushi Train kept growing, and and obviously you were doing all right, a good job for them. So they kept giving you business exactly until eventually it became a big enough business that you left your full time job exactly exactly. <laughs> that's, and, and that's hilarious. And then after that, we just kept going into Sushi Train and, and asking for more work. Um, and then they were started doing their own drinks. So then I imported coconut water and we labelled it Sushi Train coconut water. So the coconut water you see in Sushi Train is ones that I brought in. <laughs> so then we started supplying uh, coconut water to Sushi Train as well as their media. So the business kind of grew and grew from there and it was just me and my wife doing it on the side um, and obviously then it started being a full-time thing. From there I kind of said I wanted to, to grow even further um, and then we got into – I got into a, a pushed Azura to the front and then we started doing uh, baby formula to China. So we, 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 I did a partnership deal with the Chinese government uh, by a company called Yankol, uh, who have, have a, a business here called Yankhuang. Um, so I started selling uh, coal and, and baby formula to China through just, just trade. Was just how, do you, how do you do that? Like how does one decide to start selling coal? Like for example, if I was going to start selling coal, I would have no idea. I'd probably go to my farm, get the leftover fire and – Put it in bags and ship it on. Like, how do you sell coal? Yeah. You know? Well, it's it, it's it's funny because it's it's the same as selling anything else. It's it was just um, I knew contacts from when I had the engineering. When I worked with engineering, um, and I met this guy at the pub, and he was he just happened to be the vice president of this company and of this coal company of the coal company. Uh, but he looked after the e-commerce side. Um, so he said to me, hey, well, this is what we're doing. And I said to him, can I throw my ring in the hat and see if I can go out there and find a supplier and and everything else. 
So we got into that and, and started supplying these company with different things and, and it just kind of built from there. Um, and then we started bringing brands to China because obviously we had the Chinese contacts. So then we thought every brand wants to go to China right now. And sorry, how did you get the Chinese contact? Just so, for people curious, someone might be like, hey, I want to start importing shit to China. You know, just walk us through how you actually got the contact in China to start selling through. So it was the guy at the pub, met the guy at the pub. He introduced me to his company. Okay, step one, go to the pub. Go to the pub, yes. So I met him at the pub. He introduced me to his company. Um, and then from there, he just introduced me to the whole world of China. Oh, so they had, that company had contacts in China. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, okay. um, like they're a state-owned company and he's the only Aussie guy in the whole company. So okay. having meetings with me was, 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 was a lot of fun and we used to just go out and just work out like global domination of, of what we could do, what could we could sell and different things. Um, and at the time, every brand wanted to go to China. So we then, I then basically built another agency around that of how do we sell uh, businesses or how do we sell brands into China uh, using like uh, influencers and using Chinese marketing. And, and, we, and that did quite well for a while. That was kind of around the time where I met um, these fashion buyers and fashion suppliers in Italy and Sweden. And then once I saw that opportunity, the whole business kind of changed and I kind of let everything else go. Um, COVID kind of ended the sushi train kind of role. Um, but I then focused heavily on this fashion and that's kind of where we are today. Okay. And, and so, but when did Azura become a thing? In Where in place? So you had the um, media buying agency for Sushi Train and then you started the collaboration with the Chinese company just sending things to China, coal, baby formula, whatever, whatever else the Chinese want. Where did Azura come in? So Azura was always the kind of parent shell company of it all. I just love the name Azura. I, I got in partnership with one of my old bosses um, and we started Azura and we started Azura Consulting and we started Azura Runway. And Azura Runway was supposed to be the face of everything. Okay. So really Azura was just you doing yeah. business and the business just kept evolving with whichever pubs you walked into. <laughs> the business just kept evolving, you know, depending on your own personal entrepreneurship and, and what stage you were at until eventually you actually found a business partner who was your boss at one of the yeah. one of your jobs and actually created what is Azura now in its current form, which is the online fashion platform or retailer plus the uh, company that helps other retailers get onto all the other digital uh, retail platforms. Exactly. And it was always, for us, it was always sales or data. Um, and fashion kind of became the, the new coal or the new baby formula or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was. Um, so we never had any background in fashion. Um, it wasn't until we started picking up these bigger clients that we became very interested in fashion and fashion started becoming a passion of of how we kind of mould this industry because it, we just found a gap in the market. There was no one doing what we did. Everyone did little bits of it, but no one actually did the whole end-to-end. -end. Basically, what we are is, is a gateway to the world of fashion. So a brand will plug into us and all of a sudden they're in front of 42 million customers and they don't have to spend any money. It's just plug into us, we take a clip on the way through and straight away their sales channels are open. Yeah, so 42 marketplaces, 17 countries – and you've got, you mentioned just under 20 staff now as well. Yes. So it's grown from just Bonnie and Clyde to, yeah. to, to I guess, a gang of <laughs> Yes, it, it, it's been gang very full on. So we've had to um, employ a, a CFO now because me with money is not so good. So we've had to employ a CFO who can kind of control things um, because uh, the biggest thing with our business is we work with marketplaces that pay 60 to 90 days. So it's and all you're cash paying, flow. But you're also paying your customers early, no? Correct. So you've got a big issue because – so how do you manage that, for example? So if I give so if I give you my T-shirt to sell to Iconic, yep. when they sell my T-shirt, you have to give me my 30 bucks for my T-shirt. Yes. Let's say in a week. But Iconic don't pay you thirty you the 30 bucks for another month. Correct, correct. So how do you, how do, you do that? So in the beginning, we used um, a company called Scottish Pacific that did invoice financing. Um, and then we gave them a whole ledger and they kind of just uh, funded the invoices. And so – how they work is do they just take a small percentage of the invoice? So they'll say, "All right, we'll give you, um, we'll give you, uh, you the thing sold for thirty bucks. They're going to pay you in a month. We'll give you twenty eight bucks today. Yes, and then they'll yeah. give us a thirty. And so that's what you were doing. That's what we we're doing in the beginning. Um, and we and we kind of 
kept doing that until it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger um, and then the ledgers started becoming millions of dollars. So then we needed to um, – and the way we do it is we get a wholesale price so we can add whatever margin we want. So we sell on marketplaces where um, sometimes it's listed at full retail price. Like some of, some of the far-fetched items they sell is at 300% margin. So there is a huge percentage of, of margin on some of these products because we can control it. So that's how we've continued to fund the business. Um, and so what's your model? How do you make money? So we, we charge a whole, we buy at wholesale and then we sell usually at retail. At, your, at retail. Okay. Or even above retail sometimes because okay. the product's hard so, to buy. So I thought you weren't purchasing the products of your clients. I thought you were listing the products on platforms to sell. Correct. Correct. So, so we, we purchase once the item is sold. So it's like it's time. Yes. Yeah. So we list 100, 150,000 products and we might only sell 10,000 of them. Yeah. And then we only buy the 10,000. Okay. Incredible. I reckon you are extremely cool. I reckon that's one of the, the most interesting business story. Like this is one of the most interesting stories towards it. Such an, like such a cool business as well. It's not, it's not even a boring business. It, like you yeah. ended up on such a really interesting business. And uh, I do like the idea of, I like your strategy, which is to become Australia's high-end online fashion retailer, you know, bringing together all you know, Australian fashion, but the world's fashion in one place. Australia's net a border. Yeah, exactly. And, Super cool. and, and the, the benefit of it is there's no kind of uh, ceiling because there's a thousand marketplaces out there that sell fashion. Um, we're only on 42 marketplaces. So it we can just, by adding new marketplaces, we're basically adding more revenue sources every day. And so your investors... Um, which we'll talk about as well because I, I know you just raised your investors are investing in a company that's, I mean, experiencing huge growth. It's already doing very well, but in reality, it's only scratched the surface of what you could become. Yeah, like for example, just talking about what you said, the, the marketplaces alone. If there's a thousand of them, you're only on forty-two of them. That by itself is already exactly uh, is exactly. already um, uh, a lot of room to grow. And and tell us about. So I, I know uh, you've had a bit of a success story through the club in the past year or what, through Cub in the past year or whatever, um, you partnered with our members Tim Eisenhower and Nick Modderham and their company On Market. Um, so for any members that want to uh, learn more about On Market, uh, Nick Modderham's episode on the podcast talks about it. But so they do uh, capital raising and also specialise in crowd, crowdfunding. Um, do you want to talk us through, I guess, what your reason – because you just successfully closed a raise uh, around with them – I guess what was your experience with that and, and why did you raise capital? What's the thinking? Yeah, so for us it was um, we, we'd never ever heard of crowdfunding before um, when Nick first spoke to us um, and it just sounded really interesting. The idea of having a, a VC that owned 20% of the business or, or more that kind of became your boss just didn't appeal to us for a company that's growing as the rate we were growing and the opportunity that we have is just giving away is just too much. Um, when, when we met with Nick, it was very interesting of, of the mums and dads um, putting putting money in but also owning a slice of the pie but also becoming our biggest um, ambassadors. advocates and ambassadors. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. So and, and it's really – it was that that probably drawed us to this whole process. Um, so we, we went down the path with them. We made a corporate video and we did uh, some PR around that and, and it went went really well. Um, it was happened in four weeks, and the whole thing kind of started and closed quite quickly. So it was a four-week four process. Four-week process of when we went live. That's um, pretty quick. Cool, a month it? before that, we did the kind of the, the paperwork, but it was a month. Uh, yeah, a four-week process of when we went live to when it ended. That's cool. Yeah. It was and and really how did you quick. meet them in the club within your core group? Or no, um, Anne actually introduced us to us. He introduced us to some VCs first, and yeah. then introduced us to Nick. And then after we met Nick, it was kind of like, okay, this is what we want to do. Amazing. And for the listeners that aren't members, Anthony is the is uh, my business partner and also uh, our Sydney club head. And so you reached out to Anthony saying, "Hey, look, we're re- looking to raise capital." And then he just he facilitated a few introductions for you throughout the network? Yeah, exactly. Our one weakness, as I can say, is cash flow because we sell marketplaces. It's We can only grow as much as our banks can allow us. Um, so if, if I wanted to, I could say, oh, let's turn on 500 marketplaces and all of a sudden our revenue goes through the roof, but we can't fund it. Mm. Um, so that's our biggest kind of – And so that's external. what you needed to raise the capital for. Exactly. And we'll always continue to need to, to, to get to the next level, but it enables us to – um, we've kept it so lean and because we are just an aggregator and also a platform, our, our margins are quite low as well. 
So we've been able to kind you of need scale. From there. And scale, yeah. exactly. Which means growth. Mm. That's incredible, man. I always say to the members, even just one valuable relationship represents an endless amount of opportunity. And, and that's a good example of a relationship that, you know, served you now, but in the future as you expand ongoing, could it could even keep serving you. Is Bonnie still involved in the business? No, she's now full-time with the kids, yeah. <laughs> she's got twin boys. And, yes. and is your eldest a girl or a boy? Our eldest is a girl, yeah. Okay, so beautiful. She's, she's still Would you have girl. any more? Do you reckon? No, no that's it, the three, that's, that's the trifecta. And so uh, Bonnie's kind of gone out of the business now. You're in, what, what, what would you say your key strengths as an entrepreneur are? I think the sales background has definitely helped. Um, one of the big things my bosses used to say about me was I could open doors. It was I could easily pick up the phone to CEO of, of BHP or, or whoever it was and kind of get in the door there um, and then kind of create something out of nothing around that. And that was kind of my biggest drive was just making money. It was the, the, the goal of, of being successful and doing that. Um, and I learned early on that I can't do it myself. I need uh, successful people or, or um, people with different abilities to me um, around me. So that's where I met a business partner who had a completely different skill set than me. Uh, he came out of creative and, and ads. Um, so I got when we started working together, it just seemed to work really well. So we just partnered from there and then um, – It's so sales, sales, opening doors, sales, making things happen, which is strange. But also I'd say you, you sound like you just also problem solve a lot. Like you just kind of come into situations and you identify opportunities. Yeah, and that, and that would yeah. be the, the next big thing is, is is the opportunities because in asking the question, and that's what car sales taught me was ask like the amount of people that worked in sales that never asked for the business after they pitched for forty five minutes was huge. So it was always always the car sales kind of thing is sell then and there. Mm. So it was the same thing with life. What would, what, how would you close a car sale? So at the end of a car tour, what would you say to like what would be your line? Did you have a line? What would I you did, say? I did. That I had the same thing over and over again. So it was like. Someone would walk onto the yard and I'd say, what kind of colour are you looking for? And they'd say, red. All right. Uh, what kind of car are you looking for? A small or medium? Or small. Are you looking for manual or automatic? Automatic. What price are you looking for? 20 grand. So, so I'd say, if I could find you a red car, automatic, under 20 grand, small car, would you buy it today? And the answer would be yes or no. And then if it was yes, then I'd basically walk them to the car then walk back to the desk. And if it was no, <laughs> I would go find someone else. <laughs> so it was... It was that simple. It was just basically going down a call, a, a hallway, closing doors. So you basically identified: Are you a buyer? Are you a rule buyer? Would you buy today? And if you if you can if you are, well, then I'm going to help you find the product that you just described. Exactly, and exactly, and that's when that whole Wolf of Wall Street came out and that straight line selling, and <laughs> I kind of studied that religiously. The, the book, exactly. So I just followed that, and I was like, I need to sell like this guy. I read it. I read. I mean, I mean, it's my favorite movie in the world, but but I read the book, and I I think it was the straight line selling. But I can't remember. It was one of the, one of the books, but I wasn't. I, I didn't know if it worked for me because isn't it all about like what did you take from the book? The book I didn't take too much. It was more the, the DVDs he did. Um, okay. And I, I took a lot from that. Um, what were the lessons? The lesson it was, it was, it was more around the, the selling. And he, he's one of those guys where um, you never meet a hero because it was the whole time he's pitching his, his course. But it's all about this, the, what I just said was the straight line of, of closing doors the whole way through. So if if you had like a straight line, um, you'd get them to say yes and, and you'd progress to the next line. If they said no, you'd go back around and start again and get them to say yes six times but it was also supply and demand, so that whole thing with the pen. It was um, what, what kind of pen do you need? Um, if this pen can help you write, that's what pen you need. Um, where other people will sell the benefits of the pen and sell, oh, this pen is amazing, has all these different things, blah, blah, blah. The customer might not need the pen. You yeah, might. you're really getting them to to explain to you why they what they want and why they want it, but they you're getting them to say it to you. Yeah, they're selling themselves. More yeah, they're than, selling themselves. Yeah, so it's it's it was one thing the straight line selling said you never sell someone that's not interested in buying something. Yeah. So it was always you'd, I'd find what you're interested in and, and just basically continue to, to talk about that. Get your client to actually say and think and say themselves why they – so if you're selling suits maybe, like, you know, what's this suit for? Oh, I need a suit, uh, I need a suit for work. 
you know, great. What what type of suit? How do you think it's going to, like, why do you need it? Oh, I just want to, like, look, I want to look more professional when I'm doing my sales so that I'm able, great. So, you know, by having a nice suit, you're going to make more sales. Yeah, excellent. What type of suit do you want? You know, like, it's kind of like that process of, of getting them to sell themselves on kind of like getting them to say why they need it. Is that what you're talking about? It's exactly right. And that's, and that's in every part of life. I found that that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Like I, I sold to the, one of the CEOs of a iron mine um, about truckless mining and I knew nothing about truckless mining or engineering. And I just got him to talk for 45 minutes about truckless mining and then repeated to him what he had told what me. <laughs> and then he bought a million dollar contract worth of, of truckless mining. And then came at the end of it, he goes, you're so knowledgeable. I'm like, I've said like 10 words. <laughs> <laughs> I literally copied you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's awesome. And, and, but you also said that the other part, that probably the most important part, in fact, uh, was the close, was actually asking for, so the close, you call it the close, no, part of the pitch where you actually ask for the business. Yes. Because um, um, if you ask all the right questions, if you don't ask for the business, fucking no point anyway. Exactly. So I guess, do you have any tips on, Closing on, on trying to well, I think kind of most people it. don't close because they're scared of rejection. And a lot of people hate confrontation and they hate rejection. Where mm-hmm. in selling you kind of need to do otherwise you don't get paid. Mm-hmm. So you, you just it's just asking the questions. It's it's like um, in anything when you, with you guys, it's like do you want to join the membership? Um, mm-hmm. Can you join today? Mm-hmm. And it's just the same thing. It's asking for that, that business and, yeah. and not yeah. pushing them to do it but also just asking them again few times yeah and, and doing it strong i reckon because like a cub will say like look if you're not interested like we we think you're great you'd be an ideal member but if you're not interested just let us know now we'll close your invitation we'll shut it and we'll give it to someone else in your industry you know it's kind of like all right let us know otherwise you know finish go away we've got you know okay. we've got other it's that and i reckon that does work because if you look at the best sales people at cub like the members who who are probably like yourself they're more sales inclined not in the club to sell, but they're just as people, they're, they're, they're good salespeople. Miles, who also has an episode, Miles Warden from the Bespoke Corner, you know, he would be like, oh, so when are you coming in to get a couple of nice suits? You know, like they, they actually, they joke about it, but yeah. it's kind of like, it's also like, yeah, fuck, I probably should get some. Or like uh, we're looking for the CBD office at the moment. Uh, currently we're choosing between two two offices. One's in like one of the most one, top three most premium grade buildings and the other one's in a boutique a, a boutique building, so not a not considered premium grade. And the agent of the premium grade building sent me a message yesterday morning. <laughs> it was like, so you're going to go premium or you're going to go second class? <laughs> I thought, fuck, what a legend. I was like, you know, like it's funny. Like he's, got, he's yeah. like, hurry up, choose us. Like, you know, like he's putting down the other one. But And you know that they want to sell to you. You know that that's the relationship. He's a, also a friend of mine, but. But you know the relationship in terms of professional relationship that they're trying to sell. So there's almost no point trying to hide the fact that you're trying to sell. It's kind of like you may as well just do it. Like exactly. The person yeah. will probably respect the fact that it's like, oh, this guy has some balls. Like at least, at least uh, he or she has the courage to ask and yeah. like has the confidence to take my business. Do you know what I mean? And, exactly. And that probably is a sign of, yeah, like someone you'd want to do business with. Yeah, and the worst thing they're going to say to you is you're, you're a persistent little shit or something. Mm. That's the main thing. It's, yeah. it's, it's they still respect you for the actual closing the business. Yeah, <laughs> my old man used to say, if you want to sell to someone, just call them so many times that just to get you to stop calling, they just have to buy. They buy your product just just to, just to get you to go away. Don't take that uh, in reality. But the person that's calling you all the time is going to be the person that gets your business. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Like eventually, you're going to need it. It's like when you're walking JB Hi-Fi and it's the one that keeps coming over to you that yeah. gets to do yeah, the TV. 100%. Yeah, and again, with, like, I relate everything to Cub. Like we reach out to a lot of uh, great potential members um, and, you know, they might not come in, f- you know, for a year. They might be busy. They might be uh, expanding or raising or, or just had kids or whatever it may be. But then we reach out again in, in six months' time or, or even three months' time or someone else reaches out and they're like, oh, yeah, this actually is a good time. Um, you know, I'm ready to come in and grow my network now. And, and so, it, you know, you do want to hit them plenty and plenty of times. And and that, that's pretty good sales advice. And what, what's something else? I, I read in your um, prep sheet that you're actually looking now at or you have um, started looking at additional revenue streams. And, yeah. and um, do you want to share maybe, I guess, ways you're doing that with your business, with Azura? Well, with um – 
obviously when COVID happened, um, we, we noticed a lot of the luxury fashion started to die in terms of people buying Prada handbags. So it just happened to be that we wanted to build our own brand. Like we had the sales channels out there. Like we had everything built. Um, so we said, all right, let's build a affordable fashion brand. Um, and we launched that. And in the first month, we did 370 grand worth of sales. Wow. First month, never done any marketing on it whatsoever. But just launched it through the exact same platform. Through your platform? The same, yep, through our platform. And we just basically built a brand from scratch. Wow. Um, and so we did that. And then we launched another brand called Azura Fit, which was activewear, high-end activewear. Um, and then we launched another brand called Azura Chic, which was a um, fast fashion. So it was – we basically started with this idea of a platform – and then built five brands around it. They just kept pushing them out. You're basically taking the the you're taking money from both parts. You're taking your clip from the, the platforms. You're also taking the revenue from the actual product now too, yeah. because you're the you're the supplier of the product. That's super cool. Yeah, it? it was. It was. It was. It was. Um, I'd love to say it was planned because of COVID, but it just has happened to fall on mm. May when COVID happened, and then the sales just exploded. That's amazing. And and um, what's been the I guess, biggest challenge for you in terms of this business? Uh, biggest challenge, um, one obviously was, is the cash flow issue, but the second one was was COVID. Was, um, because a lot of our suppliers are in Italy, um, when Italy got hit so hard, um, all our warehouses closed down. Um, DHL was kind of shut out from a lot of, um, of getting into Australia or they, or they were uh, stuck at customs. So we, our sales exploded, um, but we couldn't deliver products because our warehouses were closed or things were getting stuck at customs for two weeks. So it was dealing with, with that and um, that's when we started to build our own brand and kind of drew, drove traffic to that. Um, but also we had to just go rely heavily on partnerships. So we were dealing with Australia Post and we're dealing with um, other other post companies and then we went we decided to lock in a contract with DHL Express because they could get through customs. So you locked in with DHL because they were the only one that could get the clothes from Italy to Australia yep. or effectively. Yeah, and we went through different places and DHL were the most expensive but they're the ones that were reliable. Yeah. When you're building a brand, the last thing you want is to just get – Yeah, you need reliability, especially an online brand, especially an online retail. Like reliability is the most important because the – like when you go into a shop, you're in the shop. The clothes there, I can pick it up. To, I know that I'm getting. The, I know I'm paying this, and I'm receiving something. With online, you you don't. It's like okay, I've got to pay now, but I haven't got it yet. I've got to wait and just pray it comes in time. You know, like exactly. yeah. reliability is probably the most important aspect of an online. Re- and I want to know that um, it comes in red, the color I ordered, and the size that I ordered, and that it's it is Gucci and not gucky. <laughs> Some other fake, you know, fake Gucci. It, like it, reliability is definitely, I would say, a priority of online companies. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and and especially shipping. It's it's people want things now. They mm. buy things and they want it now. But we're kind of hamstrung because um, they're coming from different countries. We can't just have it. You can't. You buy it today. You can't have it today. Yep. So we needed to partner with a company that could get it there and. and as little time as possible. So mm-hmm. three to five days, like you order something from Gucci from us, it comes from Gucci in Italy and it gets in three to five days. Like that's, that's pretty fast. It's quite cool. And when Italy shut down, did you then have to go like with all order issues and people had ordered, they're not getting their clothes. Did you have, did you guys have to get on the phone, start contacting your client, people that had ordered or? Yeah. And, that, and that's what the whole relationship managing thing was, was, was just picking up the phone to 42 marketplaces saying, Hey, um, there's going to be an issue here because at the end of the day, the customer is the marketplace's customer, mm. not so much ours. So yep. we're burning their relationship too. Yep. So it's it was all the whole um, uh, the stressful time of, of dealing with the marketplace and, and making sure they're okay, but also making sure things get delivered on time and refunds and yeah. different things. So you think about it, the worst time in history to ever in history to have ordered a piece of clothing online was when COVID first whacked Italy. Exactly. <laughs> like, that is the worst time in history you could ever order a piece of anything online. And, and, and that was clothing. the big thing too is, is customers didn't care the story either. You'd yeah. say, hey, uh, our, our, our warehouse in Italy is closed. And they're like, I don't care. I've paid. All my Dolce yeah. Gabbana sneakers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and that was the toughest time for us. Um, but then we had to go out and meet new suppliers mm. and find the same products from other suppliers. And most of the time we, we could do it. 
um, we'd lost a lot of margin because we were buying it not as cheap and stuff, but we were still delivering to our customers. So mm. that was kind of the end goal was to make sure everyone yeah. was happy. Yeah, I think that's great. And you put your customers first. Yeah. You mentioned something at the start. You said a lot of your, like a lot of your key driver for success and for business was cash. You wanted more cash. Has, has that evolved um, you know, as the business has grown? Have you found more passion to do with the business or do you still love the cash and that's what you're chasing? Yeah, I think it was always at a young age. I, I kind of, when you're young, you're like, I oh, want a hundred grand job. That's that's my pinnacle. And then you get there and it's like, well, it's not actually much yeah, money. It's still poor. <laughs> and then it was just always the next one, the next one, the next one. So it was always, it always has been about um, making money, but also building a reputation. Um, for yourself? For myself. Mm. Um, and and it's, it's, in car sales, there was a guy, uh, Steve Crawford, um, that he had this presence where He'd walk into the room and speak so loud, you would you would cheat yourself. Um, but he would talk like I'm talking now, but he would be like ten tones higher, and he'd instantly demand respect. And it was I was like, I want to be this guy. So, and then I realised that all I need to do is shout. But, <laughs> but it was it was always around that. So it was like, how do we how do we build the presence up and all that up? But then it kind of came with it of the business, and that was like hold on a second, now I'm starting to help businesses that are affected by COVID or by, by other things help sell their products. And when you start selling to somebody and then you start realising, I'm actually helping this guy quite a lot. Like he's got $200,000 worth of stock sitting on his floor, he can't move. And we've just moved it in a month. Like that actually starts becoming quite valuable. And it's like, well, I'm actually helping him now. Um, and then we started giving all our returns to charity and we gave, up, we gave everything to St. Vinny's. And then the smile on their face is like, oh, this is actually huge. Um, I never thought. So, what that was that? What did you give? What did you give to St. Vinny's? So, with Explain the that Azure Exchange stuff, um, a lot of it's for affordable fashion. Um, we got a lot of returns to come back to us, um, and rather than reselling them, um, we had about oh, so people pieces. bought clothes from the platform, returned it for whatever reason, and then instead of on selling it, you guys gave it to, to Vinny's yeah. to charity. Yeah. Or? So, um, and my cousin was working at, at doing pro bono legal work for um, for the charity. So they introduced us to us and they told us this is what the clothes will go and everything else. And um, It's conscious like, capitalism. Yeah. It's business, a profitable business that also helps uh, helps the community and society providing goods and services in the forms of clothing in your case and, and in forms of allowing businesses to grow for the retailers that you work with, that you allow the business to grow faster by putting them through your platforms. But also you're doing charitable work as well with, with returned items. You're giving them to Vinnie's to make good clothes more affordable to those who, who, who don't have the financial means to potentially buy new clothes. Yeah. That's an incredible – business is a force for good and, and, and even with a focus for cash, like you're saying, it's still a force for good. You're still doing things um, that, that are contributing to this world in a, an incredible way. Exactly. And, and that's where we found the next opportunity was selling pre-loved. We started selling secondhand Gucci bags. And one thing with Australia is it's not first of anything. Like there's, there's so many new opportunities for businesses that um, it does, doesn't exist here. It exists overseas but it doesn't exist here. So then we started a pre-loved so – we started selling pre-loved handbags, pre-loved things, and that just grew and grew and grew until we now had the largest pre-loved bags in Australia. And how did you come up with the name pre-loved? That's really cool. It was just – it was a second hand. I think um, Farfetch called it Second Life. Um, but we're just like, well, it's loved. It's pretty, pretty yeah. loved. So I like it. It was just something different. And, and so you've got a place on your platform that's called pre-loved. So it's like yeah. a category. So you're secondhand, you get cheaper, like good products, cheaper. Well, it's not even cheaper. Some products are even more expensive. Because really? It's one of a kind. Like I've, I bought my wife a for her 30th birthday one of those black Chanel mm-hmm. uh, those classic the handbags. The vintage bag, and, yeah, and the classic just, ones, yeah. I think when it was new, it was less Wow. It's just it's just one of those things where collectors' items, or it's, it has they have stories with them, mm-hmm. and it's also the sustainability piece. And then yeah, we we started getting a different kind of customer because we noticed that our old customer were, were older people that like Dolce and Gabbana or mm-hmm. or Gucci. But then we started finding that our customers were were younger market that were cared about the government, the, like, the, the environment, the environment. No, they hate to come. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and care about sustainability. So it, we, we found a whole new market by, by doing that. It's really cool. So. Really interesting. All right, man, well, let's wrap it up. Why don't you share with it? Do you have a favourite book or, I mean, it could even be the DVD you were mentioning before that has given you um, a lot of insight or inspiration into business or knowledge into business? Yeah. Um, the one is, is um, The Catch Book. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fu- funny story with that is well, I went to a um, – 
conference recently, and Gabby Lebowski. Uh, the book book's called Catch of the Decade. Catch of the Decade, yeah. yeah. And the, the founder of Catch, uh, Gabby Lebowski, um, he was at the conference, and it'd been after we I'd been drinking quite quite a lot, and and he obviously had been too. And I could see him. I wanted to pitch him the business more and, and know how and what we could do because we partner with uh, uh, Catch. Um, what what is Catch? Catch is Catch of the Day. So it's a marketplace um, where people sell um, anyway from fashion to appliances to. So Catch of the Day is a marketplace that like anyone can sell anything on. Yeah. And so Catch of the Decade is the book about the story it. of that company. Yeah. And you met the founder of this company at this event. Is what yes. you're saying? Okay. Yes. Um, so. I noticed he was running off, so I chased him um, and I realised he was going into the bathroom. And so I said to him right before he walked in, I'm like, can I just pitch you something real quick? And he's like, you've got 10 seconds. So I was standing there while he was going to the bathroom outside and, and pitching him this idea and it all went well and, and, and then we kind of shook hands and, and spoke after it. Next minute he's pushed him over LinkedIn. I just had the randomest pitch from this guy that pitched me in the bathroom, 10-second pitch. <laughs> so after that I went and bought his book. And it's a good book? It's a, good, a really good book. What did you learn from it? It's just about how entrepreneurship, like he came over here and started different businesses and how to grow them and also how to exit them. Cool. So it was really good and how, how to learn that. Awesome, man. And I'd love for you to share the quote from your grandfather, your granddad, that he used to say to you as well. He basically said to me, um, he was because he's an engineer, so it was always about mathematics and everything else, but it was measure twice, cut once. Um, and it was always you'd do things half-assed and you'd make a mistake. Um, and I found that with staff. It's a huge thing. I say that to a staff as well is measure twice, cut once because you make a mistake once and you can never go back. Uh, you make you, you measure twice, you're not making the same mistake. Yeah, no, I agree. That, yeah, I've related to it a lot as well. It's like, hey, just double check and then pull the trigger. Like so I also believe sometimes there's room to shoot their name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I've been known to throw a bit of them, a couple of them in, in the works. Awesome, man. Uh, dude, thank you so much for coming in. That was really, I really enjoyed, I really yeah. enjoyed just hearing your story. It really is quite a wild story in terms of like you just went with the flow of like yes. <laughs> you yeah. know, just went with the flow. I think, was, I think it's a really relatable story that I mean you came from Newcastle, you were supposed to get into engineering or something down those lines, you ended up getting into sales um, and then you just rode a wave to to creating what is now an incredible business in uh, Azura Consulting and Azura Runway and all the other sub-businesses you've created within that, the, the, the product businesses and all these type of things. It's a privilege and a pleasure to have you part of the yeah, Cub community you. and, and um, I'm really happy to have met you today. So... Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been awesome. great. And to the listeners, uh, if you want to find out more about Sam, key lessons and all sorts of things, go to cup.club forward slash podcast and you'll find a bunch of badass information uh, that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Sam, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you much. Thank you to the listeners. Hope you enjoyed the show.